This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, drones, good for search and rescue or not? We'll take a look. And Operation Airdrop really comes into its own in North Carolina for Hurricane Florence. Also, Magnus E-Fusion looks like fire didn't bring down that electric aircraft. And the House is set to approve FAA funding. All right, David, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Yeah, 1056, turn right, heading 130, contact final 1324. Turn right, contact. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulis. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. And David, uh, once again, as uh, as been our custom here in the past few shows, you caught up with our guests this week. Uh, you found uh, Mike McMahon and Chris Benage with Vulcan Air, an airplane a lot of people might not be familiar with, but you got a chance to fly. I did. I got a chance to fly the Vulcan Air V1.0, Ian. It's a four-seater high wing. Looks like a Cessna 172, but it's got an extra door on the, uh, on the co-pilot side. Nice. Yeah, it's a friendly airplane, and uh, these guys really took the airplane from nothing to, uh, to introducing it here in the States. And it has flown in Europe, but we're going to find out all about how they got it here. Okay, cool. We'll look forward to that later. Um, let's start uh, with drones. You know, I think a lot of people, as is the case with any new industry, are excited about all the different applications drones can do from search and rescue to firefighting applications and everything, you know, environmental, anything you can imagine, really. A lot of mapping and news gathering, too. Yeah, actually, that's very true, mapping and news gathering. Um, but, you know, sometimes I, I think people, you get excited and you kind of gloss over the details, but a group in the um, Europe has actually been looking at how effective are drones really at search and rescue, and they study that, and it's pretty interesting. Yeah, and you would think that they would be extremely effective at search and rescue, um, compared to uh, a traditional aircraft, mm-hmm. but they found that uh, that while drones could find the victims a few minutes faster than a traditional aircraft, that the overall success rates were really, really similar. Yeah. Now, I thought that was interesting. It is interesting, and actually, the writer of the story... Steve Rode. Yeah, Steve Rode, who did this for AOPA. He apparently flies uh, with a fire department, and he made a couple of really good points, things that I wouldn't have thought about, which is that, you know, drones don't have unlimited time in the air. They they get, you know, 20 minutes, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes. And so exactly. if you're searching a broad area, 
um, the idea that they can go out and find that pinpoint, um, you know, I think they usually have to be able to hone on an area a little bit. That's that is that's a key point, Ian. You you nailed it. Yeah. And also, Steve is a drone and a Cessna one eighty two pilot, so he has mm. the best of both worlds from from that perspective. Yeah. And you're right. That's a good point. Once you know where you're searching, then maybe a drone could be more effective. But you first have to figure out where you're going. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, what they did is they took sort of simulated victims and then tried to find them, basically. And um, really interesting. And I, I think what they found is, I suppose, maybe what you would expect if you really thought about this, which is that you need a, a team of resources. So it's not just the drone, not just an aircraft. But if you take a lot of those things together, ground personnel, um, that's where you're going to have the most success. Right, because you have to interpret some of the data that you're getting, too, and you have to have a system of checking off where you've been and where you need to go. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he says that a chronic misconception is that merely putting a drone in the air will lead to a fast and positive outcome, mm -hmm. uh, and basically said that's a leap of faith, although it, and indeed drones are great to have when, uh, when you're in a hurry and you know where you're going, then they, they probably could actually uh, be extremely effective, but... But we have to direct them somehow on the ground first. Yeah, um, he has a good quote in here. He says, there is no magic drone on the market that leads to SAR success, um, which I think is a good point. But he did say he sort of envisions a future where um, rather than maybe one drone that goes up and with a pilot and you have to, you know, find the needle in the haystack, uh, there's there would be a whole sort of swarm of smaller drones that work autonomously to search a grid, and that could potentially be much more effective. That sounds a little bit my, like uh, Alfred Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds movie. <laughs> Birds, yeah, they're swarming all <laughs> over the place. But that makes sense because then you could uh, you probably could task the you know certain drones to search a certain part of a certain grid, mm -hmm. and then yeah, you would have yeah. basically a team of eyes in the sky. Yeah, so that kind of does make sense to me. Yeah, yeah, really interesting. Um, hey, let's talk about something else with uh, aircraft helping people. Um, this is something that I know is is close to your heart, in part because um, you covered hurricanes a lot prior to coming into aviation, and so you have a bit of a background there. And then I know you were also in Florida last year uh, helping with the recovery. So you followed up this year on some of the on the hurricane in, in uh, North Carolina with Operation Airdrop, a group that's uh, that's really expanding. Yeah, we did, Ian. Um, I gave Doug Jackson a call with Operation Airdrop. Now, they're based out of Texas. And if you'll recall, our podcast listeners will probably also recall that they started last year uh, after Hurricane Harvey. And then the reason why the group got together was because folks in outlying areas were having not having very good success with getting relief from the federal government. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of an ad hoc group of pilots that got together with an idea that said, hey, if we can all fly for the betterment of mankind, so to speak, you know, we can get something done. Yeah. And uh, indeed, they they uh, delivered about uh, 250,000 pounds of stuff last year during Hurricane Harvey. And they topped it, Ian, this year with Hurricane Florence with 280,000 pounds of supplies and 475 general aviation flights. Now, they were based out of Raleigh. Yeah, that's phenomenal. And I love the story in part because... This just kind of made me laugh, one of those little details. You know, they know there was 475 flights, which obviously be, you know, they can sit on the ramp and track. But they said there was 280,692 pounds of supplies. That's amazing to track that. Yeah, and I wonder, <laughs> it's like, do they have little scales as they came into the hangar, you know? it's uh, Well... <laughs> 
Well, they did. Well, here's another interesting part of it. Um, and and kind of to answer your question a little bit, TAC Air is the FBO there at uh, Raleigh Durham International Airport, and they had not even moved into their brand new FBO facility yet. Their phone lines were not even installed. But uh, the airdrop folks uh, and volunteers on the ground, they, they striped out parts of the floor with tape. And so they would, they would position these potential shipments within these parameters of tape. And, uh, and that way they kind of got a visual look at what was going to go to, you know, to people that they were helping out with relief supplies. But, but you bring up a good point, Ian, which is weight and balance because we're in small aircraft, yeah. anything from a Cessna 172 all the way up through, uh, you know, Cicada and TBMs and Pilatus PC-12s. And actually the Joe Gibbs Racing Team brought their uh, CRJ. That's awesome. That could hold a lot more than the average 600 pounds in a 172, you think? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I love the photos on this story. So you got to go online and check them out. There's a, a kind of an overhead photo in the FBO, and it's just this hive of activity. I mean, it looks like um, it actually kind of reminds me of a mall like on Christmas, you know, where you see yeah, like people carrying and packages and just jammed with people. And um, very cool to see people helping out like that. Well, and they're all they're all volunteers, yeah. and um, yeah. and folks really get a good feeling for you know from doing that. Mm-hmm. And really, it goes back to what you and I have talked about in other podcasts, which is, you know, give pilots a reason to do something and they're all over it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, (laughs) that's so true. It's clearly like this big pent up demand of pilots looking to do something, looking to help. And this gives them an outlet, which is just so cool. It does. And before we um, before we leave this story, I wanted to mention one thing that was interesting to me. We were talking a little bit about technology earlier uh, with drones, but the Civil Air Patrol actually unleashed some technology, which included a surrogate predator drone. Oh wow! Uh, you know, based out of Louisiana, and they were helping FEMA identify uh, infrastructure issues. Mm. And this predator drone was able to, and it was remotely piloted. Obviously, mm-hmm. it had infrared capability, which is good in a storm because you got low clouds. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So a lot of the VFR aircraft would typically not be flying that you could fly this at night and also in low visibility with infrared that really helps out and so they use that and the Silver Air Patrol also used another another device called a Waldo Air camera system that was lashed to a strut of a Cessna 182 hmm. and and so that provided what they called multi-spectral views of the ground oh okay very cool. You want to make sure that bridges are not being undermined mm-hmm. and that Absolutely. roadways aren't you know, being washed away or, you know, the, you know, gravel from the bed, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was interesting. Interesting use of technology in the Civil Air Patrol and, uh, and uh, Operation Airdrop. And I think that, that both these two groups, Ian, in the future, I think we'll hear a lot more from both of them as they perfect some of these techniques. Yeah, sounds like it. No, I agree. That's a great story. So I want to uh, go back uh, a couple of months to an accident that we touched briefly on. Um, that didn't get a ton of play in, I guess, what you'd call the mainstream aviation media, in part because it was it happened in Europe, I think. But you may recall in May, a Magnus E-Fusion, which was a complete electric aircraft, uh, crashed in Hungary, mm-hmm. uh, where it was based. And there were uh, some initial reports that there was a fire. Now, Dave, what do you think most pilots' biggest concern is with a flight? Well, a lithium battery, which uh, which could ignite yep. in flight, yep. would be my biggest concern for for a battery-operated aircraft. And in fact, as a traveling commercial passenger, we are taught now to keep those lithium batteries on us mm-hmm. or in our, our baggage with us, not in the checked hole. Yeah. 
So, yes, uh, and especially dr- the drone pilots out there know that a runaway lithium battery could be a real big problem yep. uh, powering a drone. Yeah, that's right. I, and I think when people, when you start to look at uh, electric flight for just a minute, the first question is always, okay, well, what about uh, fire safety? Right. And so um, it's interesting, though, because you, you dig a little deeper and you find that the engineers really are doing some pretty interesting tests, and they've they've started to overcome the concern. Um, NASA, you know, is building the X-Plane that's going to be all electric, and of course they have very high fire standards, and they've been testing to a very high standard and finding success. So, But I think that the fear still remains that fire is going to be a concern with these airplanes. Right, and that, that's what everyone thought happened over here with the Magnus. Yeah, yeah. So, so to bury the lead completely here, um, essentially what happened is the preliminary report came out, and investigators found that because they had a, an Apario flight um, recording device on the aircraft with video and parameters and everything else, uh, they found there was no in-flight fire. That's good news for the Magnus and for for electric propulsion, really. Yeah, yeah, it really is. So, and, and basically, what the report said is everything seemed to be operating normally. Um, now, there was a post-crash fire. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I suppose you could start to look into that and say, okay, well, do batteries play a part in the survivability of a post-crash fire? Um, I mean, we have that issue now with fuel tanks, so I would say it's a right. you know, it's it's a bit of a you know level safety playing field. Um, at this point, but yeah, it's, um, it appears that everything was operating normally. Now, of course, we'll have to wait and see what they determine the cause of the accident to be, but it, um, who knows? I mean, it could just be straight, you know, something pilot error kind of, kind of thing. Yeah. Like a base to paste to final turn, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. We'll just have to kind of wait and see, but I think good news for the electric aircraft, uh, industry is it, uh, is it comes on board. Um, yeah. And they're and building I, more time in the e-fusion and that your, your story that, um, said that it had at least 200 hours. And I know that the, this aircraft's being also tested elsewhere yeah. or versions of it with that Siemens electrical engine, yeah. uh, particularly in Texas. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's, that's right. actively ongoing research. Yep. That's right. That's right. Hey, let's talk about some good news. The House is about, well, the House did pass a five-year FAA reauthorization bill. Oh, that's a big deal. That's something that we are excited about, Ian, because you and I were talking about this right before the podcast. I guess that means that we don't have to worry about the so-called air traffic control privatization for at least five years, right? That's right. Yeah. Every time the budget comes up, um, you know that privatization is going to be a part of it. Um, and this means that at least as far as the normal process is concerned, I suppose they could work outside it, but uh, at least as far as the standard reauthorization process, it lo- it's looking like um, we're good for another five years. I think that's awesome. And uh, but, you know, not only that, you know, passing the funding bill and the stabilization for, you know, FAA, but we're looking at a couple of cool things that were in that bill that mm-hmm. will look to the future and help rebuild the the pilot population, for one, you know, the yep. high school aviation curricula is something that, that that bill also had inside it. And, you know, AOPA is really big on the you can fly side, mm-hmm. getting our ninth and 10th grade high school curricula out there to students. So they could even think about joining us in the aviation world. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So um, all kinds of really interesting things in this. Like you said, uh, funding for high school aviation programs. There's actually a lot about workforce development, um, maintenance technicians. I think Congress was really smart about um, looking at all the labor force issues that we're going to face in aviation. But yeah, um, high school programs, 
Um, like I said, stuff for maintenance tax. There's funding, uh, additional funding, and a new mechanism by which airports can receive that funding, uh-huh. um, which is great. Also, we were talking a little bit about this, um, or talking offline about this, but a volunteer pilot liability protection, that's one thing mm-hmm. um, that this legislation was looking to also contained as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think all around, this is a really good bill. Uh, like we said, biggest thing doesn't include user fees. That's great. Oh, it also, it, it goes into the uh, some issues with designated pilot examiners. So it's a really robust bill. There's lots of stuff if you're a drone pilot to look at in there. Right. Yeah, so lots of interesting things. And I suppose for those who are listening, who paid attention in civics, you know, we didn't mention the Senate or a final law. Uh, actually, right. as we're recording this, um, the Senate is supposed to vote on it and is widely expected to pass. They're going to, you know, I think basically what happened is they worked all this out ahead of time. House passes it, then the Senate's going to pass it and we're, and we're good. So that's what we're thinking. Yeah. We got our fingers crossed. Yep. So, uh, looking really good there. Really good. That's awesome. All right. Last bit of good news. We're going to, man, we're ending on two pieces of good news today. Very good news. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Signature, uh, which, you know, we've been, um, pushing the FBO industry a little bit these past couple of months to be more transparent to be more equitable about their fees and to have more reasonable fees. And Signature um, up to now has resisted publishing those fees in part because we know um, depending on who you are, how often you visit, that sort of thing, the fees change considerably. Well, also for competitive reasons. I get it. Yep, yep. Um, But it came out this week that uh, they had a shift in policy and they have published some of those fees. And that's important because if you're a pilot going from coast to coast or somewhere in in your state to another state, you kind of want to know how much it's going to cost to land if there is a landing fee Mm -hmm. uh, and how much fuel is going to cost, you know, if you're going to fuel up your single or your twin. You know, instead of it being like a black hole, we now have some... We now have some some black and white things to look at that will definitely help us make those decisions. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. You know, we look through some of these fees and, you know, you could get fuel prices before. Uh, we all know that. But, of course, a lot of those for um, for frequent guests were um, were discounted. Uh-huh. But uh, but the, the posted price was out there. But anyway, looking through these, which uh, AOPA staff have done, they found that most locations have a piston infrastructure fee of five bucks. Um, and then the fees varied widely depending on the location. So um, Signature is at Logan in Boston, primary class B airport, and at BWI uh, in Baltimore. And there you're going to find handling fees of 50 bucks for a single engine airplane, 100 bucks for a light piston twin, and 150 bucks for a heavy piston twin. But at small airports, class D like Frederick, where we are, um, the fees are more you're like... Looking, you're looking at a lot less money, right? Yeah, yeah. You are 30, 40, and 50 bucks respectively. Well, you know, I wish it was zero bucks, but I kind of, you know, I kind of get it. We don't want, you know, we don't want the FBOs to go out of business. Of yeah. course, we need them. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And that's right. And you know what? We've been saying that all along. It's like, um, the deal here is not, not to get a handout. It's, it's just to know ahead of time what it is we're going to pay. What you're looking at. Yeah, absolutely. Make sure there's room on your credit card to pay the fee. Yeah. Or maybe don't eat lunch, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and, you know or something. No, I, I joke. But, uh, but you know, all this really is important because um, as you're looking at your year of flying, you do want to tabulate the cost from you know, going from here to there. And Mark Baker's real, real big on you know, give us a mile of paved runway and we could go anywhere. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. 
he don't want to, you know, he doesn't, and AOPA doesn't want to see anything stand in the way of us in our transportation infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. And of course, I, I'm sure what a lot of people don't realize is that um, for all of the public talk we've had about this, there have been months and months and months of behind the scenes talk. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, we're very happy to see this finally come to fruition. And, you know, a couple of good quotes here, I think, from Signature, from the, the marketing guy, Patrick, you know, stuff about, he says uh, they want to make Signature easier to do business with, easier to for the customers, no matter what they fly. And so that's nice. I mean, they do have light GA loyalty programs. Oh, yeah. And many people go to Signature and are very happy with it. So, Well, i got to tell you, I've had pretty good experiences at most of the Signature FBOs I've been to, mm-hmm. um, especially most recently. I really have had no issues. People are really helpful. Yeah. They have actually been also helpful in some of these national emergencies, too. So yeah. we should tip the hat to them a little bit. We were talking a little bit about Operation Airdrop earlier, and Signature helps out sometimes with that, too. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, um, you mentioned uh, Mark Baker's position on this. You know, he's a big believer in competition. And so uh, the feeling is that a lot of these airports where an FBO, doesn't matter who runs it, where an FBO is a monopoly, is a potentially mm-hmm. bad situation for uh, for pilots. And so... Um, you know, he, he we quote him here as saying, um, as with self-service fuel and the introduction of a second FBO where it makes sense, alternative parking is another way to spark competition. And um, and he said, fee transparency for all categories of aircraft and alternate access are critical to for the protection of general aviation. So I, I think that's a great point. There you go. And again, sometimes if you're, you're flying into an airport that might have a fee for parking at a certain area, It'd be great to know if there's another area that you can park at Mm -hmm. that was Mm non-feed. And some pilots would do that if they didn't need fuel. If they only were doing a quick turnaround to pick up or drop off a passenger, they might choose to do that. They would want to know, you know, where that is or if there is a fee just to pop in and let someone off or pick someone up or say you're doing a rescue mission and it's pilots in the pause or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? And that's a great point. I would love that at some of these primary class B airports, class C airports, because um, so often it would be so much easier to go and drop a friend off at the airport so they could catch a commercial flight, but you just can't because it's like, by the time you pay for, obviously you're paying for fuel, but you know, you get to go flying. So that's fun. Um, But by the time you're paying the ground fees, it's like, ah, oh, forget it. You're, you know, you'll drive in. Um, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't make sense financially. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, hey, let's move on. I'm really excited to hear more about the Vulcan Air and uh, your experience with it and uh, their plans for the airplane in the U.S. having our hangar talk podcast live from miami today at uh, miami executive airport at the home offices of amer avia and i'm here to talk about the new vulcan air v10 a four seater trainer and i'm here with mike and with chris let's meet chris first i'm chris benaj of amer avia inc i'm the ceo of the company hi i'm mike mcmahon i'm vice president of sales and marketing with amer avia Let's go to Chris first. Tell us a little bit about your background. I know you went to Embry-Riddle University, and uh, and tell us a little bit about how you got from there to here. Yeah, I was a graduate of Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. Uh, did a four-year degree program, obtained my ratings uh, through the university, a CFI, MEI, I. Did a lot of flight instruction for a couple of years, and uh, eventually turned that into a light sport aircraft uh, 
flight school out of Tamiami Airport. From there, uh, eventually grew into what is Amoravia today, a, a sales distribution company for Balkan Air aircraft out of Naples, Italy. Now let's hear from Mike. Uh, he's a veteran publishing industry giant, and let's hear a little bit about his background. Well, I'm an ex-flying Saluki from Southern Illinois University. Spent uh, four years in the Navy as an air traffic controller at NAS Lemoore in California. It was an extremely busy facility back during the early 70s. Uh, I then went to, after release from the military, I went to work for the FAA as a controller at Chicago Center. When I realized I was not going to survive another 20 years at that, uh, I found Plane Pilot Magazine and was the publisher of Plano Pilot for about 34 years, I believe it was. Semi-retired, and uh, Chris and I had become friends uh, in the last four or five years as he was marketing the Vulcan. And uh, so he offered to uh, give me an opportunity to come down here. When he's telling me about the V1, I thought it was an exciting project, and I wanted to come down and help him make it happen. All right, cool deal. Well, we, um, we got a chance to fly the Vulcan Air V1, uh, yesterday with both Mike and Chris. Chris took his life in his own hands and let Dave T fly for a little while. But let's hear a little bit about the aircraft. I want uh, Let's start with Chris first. Tell me a little bit about the aircraft and sort of its capabilities, if you will. Well, it's uh, a high wing, uh, you know, metal aircraft, Lycoming IO360 M1A engine, 180 horsepower with a constant speed propeller, hard cell propeller. Very uh, Durable uh, would be the word, I guess, high-volume high training type aircraft, build sturdy, uh, roll cage for the cabin. As you saw yesterday, flying fly, flight characteristics are very uh, streamlined tight. Uh, gives you a, a, almost a semi-sports car feel, but also very forgiving aircraft, like you would have in many training airplanes. So, um, Mike, now you were in the back seat. Tell me, uh, first of all, this aircraft has three doors. We should let our podcast listeners know it has three doors. And start with getting in the airplane and tell us a little bit about what it was like from the back seat. Well, it's, um, it's a very natural, I would say, uh, effort to get into the airplane. You just kind of slide in a little bit sideways, put one foot up, and you're in the airplane. Uh, so it's very comfortable back there. You, you do have to wait for the pilot and co-pilot to get in, adjust their seats, and then you get in the back. But it's a very comfortable arrangement. So we, we did a little flying yesterday with these guys. We went down from uh, Miami through the, no, really through the keys. We hopscotched around from one key to the next to the next. The first thing I noticed when we um, took off over here out of uh, Executive Airport was that this aircraft really wants to fly. Tell us a little bit about that, either of you guys. Well, it's uh, standard takeoffs at flaps 14, um, uh, a little bit, uh, I wouldn't call it unconventional, but different for a single engine uh, piston airplane. And because of that, it, it's almost uh, gives you a, a soft field, short field takeoff performance. So the airplane, as soon as it's uh, about ready, ready to rotate on rotation speed, 65 knots, it's ready to fly. You, you just ease it off and back pressure on the control column and it gets you airborne. Uh, real small, smooth transition. So the other thing I noticed was that it seemed like it had push rod controls. When I applied rudder, it was almost immediate. I would say it was immediate. When I applied left and right aileron, we were turning. It wasn't, wasn't like we were wallowing in it like uh, I'm more familiar than 172. It's kind of like you turn, aircraft thinks about turning, and then it does turn. In this case, the aircraft was very responsive. And, you know, I kind of felt like it had a, a nice Italian heritage. Either of you guys, tell us about that a little bit. Well, I would say that the one thing I'd 
significant is if you've ever flown a Mooney, which is a pushrod controlled airplane, it's very much like that, very positive feel. Uh, you feel the airplane, there's no sloppiness at all in the controls, it's just very direct. You, you move the controls and the airplane moves. All right, so now the other thing that I noticed, I'm you know, thinking about the training environment, thinking about how students will learn to fly this aircraft. And one thing we should mention is that um, the aircraft behind these two guys has a constant speed propeller. It's got a Lycoming 180 horsepower engine, nothing unusual about that. A little bit different for students. Uh, it is my, you know, my experience yesterday, you know, I took to it pretty easily. It wasn't that hard. We were talking a little bit um, off camera about what it might mean for flight schools and for students having that kind of a constant speed propeller in the training environment. Why don't you guys tell me a little bit about the, the positives and the negatives of that? The obvious positive of the constant speed propeller is that you can manipulate the prop and that gives you a good climb prop, good cruise prop, so it allows you to uh, climb faster when, you know, on takeoff at a higher RPM setting and then uh, cruise it out toward the cruise and get a higher cruise speed. So there's a positive advantage to that. Uh, as a training environment, it's a good transition, early transition for students as they go on a complex aircraft or further their training into you know, more complex aircraft in general, turboprop aircraft to get used to that from uh, their initial training. Uh, so there's many positives that come with having a constant speed propeller. Uh, in, in this airplane in particular, we're cruising at uh, about 125 knot true airspeed, as you saw yesterday, and a lot of that's thanks to the constant speed propeller. Now, Mike, you and I were chatting a little bit offline, and you had uh, there were, you said that some flight schools might have reservations about that, basically a dollar and cents kind of a deal. Uh, just run through that real quick. Between well, between Chris and Mike, we were talking about this, and so you know we're thinking about it. it might have add, you know having a constant speed propeller is a little bit more complicated. It might add a couple of cents per hour, but over the long haul, some flight schools really don't want that because you know it just it, it's more maintenance. It's a little bit more maintenance heavy. They're not concerned about the I guess the appropriation costs up front, but they are more concerned on the back end. And if the airplane's going to be down for a prop overhaul or uh, or anything like that, you know there, there's more things that are entered into the equation. And so let's, let's talk a little bit about that. You know, do flight schools really want a constant speed propeller in a four-person trainer like this? Let's just go with that. It, I mean, it depends on how the flight school wants to look at the aircraft. And we talked about this earlier. Uh, one nice thing with a constant speed propeller for an owner, and it does for the private owner, flight school owner, uh, it, it, it holds a value for that uh, versus a you know fixed pitch propeller. So there's an added value, resale value down the road for the aircraft. And it also allows you to retail it to a bigger market. You're not stuck to uh, just a typical uh, flight school owner that would want a training aircraft. You may have a private owner that wants something like a V1 or you know similar type aircraft. The negative, as you were mentioning, or the flight schools that would prefer a fixed pitch propeller, is that they uh, look at it as a cost item, and there's a dollar value per hour associated with it. I don't have it offhand and every flight school probably calculates it differently so I won't give you one but there is a, a cost per hour to operate that in overhaul cost, maintenance cost, and downtime. And for a flight school every dollar, every minute, every penny counts as I've been there before so I understand that aspect of it and uh, we're hoping to roll out the fixed pitch uh, option here before the end of the year provide those customers that are concerned with that uh, an alternative aircraft or an alternative uh, prop. 
So one thing that was interesting over at uh, AirVenture, and I was talking to Mike at AirVenture just a couple weeks ago, and one thing that you mentioned was that uh, owners could have either the fixed pitch or the constant speed prop for the same price. And that price is? Price of the 2019 model is $278,000. That includes uh, new for the 2019 model, the Garmin G500 TXI avionics package so it's a that's a significant improvement uh, over the basic G500 so and it also will have the large screen version so it'd be 10.6 inch uh, monitor tell me a little bit about more, more about um, the avionics when we were flying yesterday it, you know that was my first time uh, actually second time uh, you know behind a full glass panel aircraft uh, it took a little getting used to and, uh, and Chris, you commented on it, on it when I, I was asking you a little bit about where the ball was, you know, a normal, normal ball that I'd be looking at during my turns and all. And then uh, I didn't realize that I was having coordinated turns until I started looking for the instrument. So it's a little bit of a learning curve, but tell us a little bit about the instruments and the digital component of this aircraft. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. It was, uh, I hadn't even, I didn't realize you didn't have experience with the G500 because of the brick or, or ball was so centered the entire flight on our way down to the keys that it didn't see it seemed like you knew exactly where it was so but at, at any rate uh, yeah it's a full it's a G500 uh, you got PFD MFD uh, JPI instrument uh, analyzer and a GTN 650 which gives you the loss capability for all your GPS approaches uh, and then a secondary GNC uh, 255 com for your second com and that function the uh, G500 PFD is very standard, similar to any of the Garmin products uh, displayed. Currently, in the way we have it, it's non-synthetic vision, but uh, there is an option for that. And as you saw yesterday in any of the glass equipment, especially Garmin, it's, uh, it's all displayed in front of you. And that PFD, it's very nice to look at. And the MFD is amazing for situational awareness. And you have it on your GTN 650 as a redundant item, but we both display safe taxi for awareness on the ground and uh, all the complex airspace in the South Florida area you can see that all displayed on there as well for awareness purposes but as far as flying uh, whether it's visual or IFR for IFR it's a, a great system you have your your uh, magenta tapes predictive uh, as to where your airspeed and uh, altitude is going and you know it, it really allows you to, uh, to fly the airplane extremely precisely something that was as easy with the old steam gauge uh, system. One thing I'd like to add about the G500 series is it has all the same functionality of the G1000. So what the G1000 does, the G500 also does. Basic differences has one AHARS and one GPS. Uh, but the G5, G1000 is basically the same avionics that they have in the Citation jets. So it's like why put a Citation Jet avionics package in a training aircraft. It's my understanding, I don't know specifically, but I've heard that that's about a $50,000 savings uh, in the V1 over the Cessna 172 by itself. That's a good point. I'm glad you brought it up. And Chris, you mentioned something that I was going to hit on real quick. Flying the aircraft with the, with the, with the tapes, you know, uh, going up and down the left side of that screen, 
uh, it was pretty easy to hit that VX and that, those VY numbers just after we took off. It made it pretty simple for me, for someone who didn't have much experience with that new, you know, new avionics, um, I took to it pretty quickly, I think. So I, I was trying to put myself in a student's shoes, and, and I don't think that would be too baffling for me. You know, either you guys want to tell me a little bit about you know, how training is going these days and sort of the overall picture of that. It's obviously simpler uh, from my point of view as an instructor when you have, uh, you no longer have to worry about a scan, especially in an instrument student. Uh, you have everything that you need displayed in one spot. Uh, so it's easy to, you know, to just take a quick glance from your left side of PFD to the right side of PFD for airspeed and altitude and vertical speed changes. And in the center, you got your big attitude indicator, which is basically your entire screen with a large tick marks. It's not a small round attitude indicator, and just below that, your uh, HSI per and compass rows, I mean, overlaid with any of uh, you know your nav one, nav two functions, and you can display multiple RMIs on there for additional awareness. Uh, it, as an instructor, it makes our job a lot easier. You know, you you don't have to worry about developing a method for a scan in an instrument student. The primary students, obviously, most of it's still being taught visual reference outside for backup purposes looking inside. So I, it's not as much of a, a change or a dramatic thing for them, uh, but it is a nice uh, panel to look at and, and uh, to get all their instruments. And when they move on from private instrument, they already have the experience. Uh, but you saw yesterday, it, it's not a real major transition. It's, it's a very simple thing that can be accomplished in a matter of a couple hours for those who are coming from the steam gauge airplanes. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was cool. We talked a lot about the avionics right now, and they are awesome cool, but let's talk about the aircraft a little bit. This aircraft is, is new to the United States, but this is not a new aircraft. It's been flying overseas for quite a while, and I believe, um, I, I think Mike told us last year that it kind of made its mark of being a real robust airplane. Chris, you mentioned the, the roll cage construction, uh, which I like to hear about a little bit further, but um, I'm looking at the beefy landing gear. You can walk under the wing without getting the, the dreaded Cessna diamond on your forehead by hitting the, the back of the ailerons or the flaps. So it's a little bit taller aircraft. Um, it's got a lot of uh, aluminum and steel construction. It's a solid aircraft. We talked about the pushrod controls and all, but uh, this is not a brand new design. In Italy and in Europe, it's been flying for a while. Tell us a little bit about the heritage. I know both of y'all have been to the factory. Tell us a little bit about the background. Well, um, the airplane is actually a derivative of an airplane that was called the P-64, which was designed in the 60s, very much like the Skyhawk. And this aircraft is directly competitive with the Skyhawk and the Archer. So a lot of similarities in uh, the performance and that sort of thing with it. But it, you know, this, it's a little faster, has a little more useful load, uh, has a little bit higher, um, better climb rate. Uh, so it, it does have benefits over the Skyhawk and the 182. But basically what they did was they took the P-64 and updated it for the current market. So they upgraded the engine, the propeller, the avionics of course, you know, wheels and brakes, electrical system, all of that was updated to modern standards or current standards. And that's what became the V-1. So the, uh, the V1 that we're looking at here, the one cool thing is that we talked about at the, at the beginning of this, is that it's got three doors. We've got a pilot's door, we've got a co-pilot's door, we've got a passenger door. That's kind of neat. 
for a personal aircraft. That's a cool thing. Or if you're a flight school, it allows uh, an, observer, an observer to get in the back pretty easily. But um, there was a lot of room. Uh, Chris and I were flying up front. There was a lot of room between us. We weren't rubbing shoulders. I mean, uh, we didn't have that, that I'm, in your, I'm in your space kind of a feel. Mike, you were talking about that a little bit yesterday. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, the cabin is actually, um, we physically measured both the 172 and the V1, and our cabin is two inches wider at the shoulders, where the pilot and co-pilot are normally seated. Yesterday when we were flying, um, I happened to notice the space between you, and I stuck my fist between you, and I didn't touch anything. So that's uh, something that's a, a big advantage over... Uh, there's a lot of comments about how small the cabin is on general aviation airplanes. So this one is an improvement over what's out there currently in the training market. Now, another thing I was going to stress, because you guys, neither one of y'all has stressed it yet, this aircraft is about $100,000 less uh, than a current price of a, of a Skyhawk uh, or an Archer or a, or a Diamond DA-40. So uh, with that extra hundred grand, what am I going to be able to do with that? Well, it depends on uh, your current situation as a flight school, but what we've seen over the last six months is you know, the, the training fleet in general in the United States is, is an older training fleet, and a lot of companies or growing companies are looking to replace larger uh, fleets. Uh, we're talking about five to ten airplane orders, and that uh, allows you to buy uh, basically an additional aircraft every two to three airplanes, uh, where they would have to uh, spend it on your Cessna 172 Archer DA-40. Uh, so there's more spending capital available, uh, you know, or they can save the money and, and use it on, uh, on, on parts. Uh, we have some other ideas for the future for a parts program that, that would help with, with things like that. And I'd also like to add that um, we project that this aircraft in a flight school, as a brand new aircraft, can probably rent for $140 to $150 an hour uh, wet. That, I believe, is comparable to a Skyhawk or an Archer that's going at minimum for 160 but more realistically $180, $190 an hour wet. So there, to the renter, um, there's that much of an advantage. Yeah, it, it, you have a lower haul value for the airplane and that in turn reduces your insurance costs by that $100,000 you're saving in the haul value. So it, it's an overall savings uh, in the acquisition but an also yearly operation uh, for the, the end user. Just, by the fact of paying less money on insurance. And it should be in the $2,000 to $2,500 range, we, we figure, depending every school has, depending on the size of their fleet and how long they've had their plan, it's a different cost savings. Um, you know, it's not an exact number. So for folks who are listening to this on the podcast version, I, I'm a former airplane owner myself, and I'm, even when I had an air coop, the insurance is about 900 bucks a year. Moved up to a Mooney, is about $1,400 a year. So that's not a huge jump to think about $2,500 a year for insurance. It's about 200 a month, um, and that's real helpful versus something that would cost about, you know, f again, 40% more money that would really change the rates a lot. And that affects the bottom dollar. I mean, let's, let's face it, pilots are cheap. So, uh, you know, anything we can get to save us a little bit is good. Um, so, Chris, uh, tell us, I know you've flown this little airplane a little bit more than Mike has. Tell us a little bit about a typical procedure. Give us a, run us through, uh, take, I tell you what, run us through uh, how many fuel drains we have, because I thought that was kind of cool, and the interesting fuel cap. Then take us right from that into a typical uh, takeoff roll, what, you know, what speed we're going to um, rotate at, 
and uh, climb out at, and then run us through uh, a typical landing and approach, that kind of thing. Well, to answer the first question, we have uh, three fuel drains, uh, one under each uh, inboard part of the wing, and another one under the engine, pretty uh, standard there, nothing different. As the uh, fuel caps go, we, we do have two fuel caps on the top, and they have a uh, cover uh, that goes over the fuel cap, protect the cap in order to not get uh, any water to settle on top of the cap and subsequently water in the tank, so less issues with draining water out of the tanks when the airplane sits outside. Uh, and it also makes the, uh, the wing more clean, slipstream, so a little bit of benefit to that for a cruise um, climb. Uh, as far as uh, takeoff procedure, uh, you know, it's pretty standard. Uh, one minor difference uh, with the fuel pump, as you saw yesterday, we'll turn the fuel pump on from the ground to 1,000 feet. And uh, through coming down through 1,000, uh, we'll turn it back on to the landing. Uh, the procedure that has been off and on around uh, in the fuel-injected airplanes with the same engine or similar engine. Uh, as far as uh, uh, rotation speed itself and, and you know, advancing power, it's, it's very similar to any other airplane. We'll rotate at 65 knots. I mentioned that flaps 14 will be our takeoff setting for the flaps. Uh, we'll rotate the aircraft, uh, clean it up in the climb, retract the flaps once we're clear of obstacles, and accelerate it to our VY speed of 78 knots. Uh, now we, you know, we take that up to 1,000 standard pattern altitude above the ground, and uh, to, for a landing, uh, we'll bring it. We have a constant speed propeller, so we're setting our uh, power setting in inches of manifold pressure, bringing that to 15 inches of manifold, you know, advancing our prop full forward, uh, having a mixture control full forward, and uh, in the wide arc, 78 knots, selecting our first notch, flaps 14, turning the base, uh, joining final, we'll go to final flaps 28. Our approach uh, flap setting will be right around 70 knots on final, uh, you know, depending on gust factor and whatnot, but 70 knots is what the book calls for, and, and uh, fly it onto uh, to the ground, normal landing. Uh, one minor note I, I've noticed with the airplane, it's not a, a floating type airplane. Uh, it's much like the Vulcan Air P-68 uh, aircraft. They do have some float to them. Uh, they're easy on the controls. Very, uh, you don't feel crosswinds much at all. Uh, the input's uh, rather docile, in my opinion, for a crosswind. I, uh, first or second day we were flying it, we had a 10-knot crosswind, I'd call it, 8 to 10-knot crosswind, and it was a non-event. All right, so uh, one thing I did notice, that was uh, something to keep an eye on. You mentioned that, that magic number is 78. That's a little low for, for flaps for folks who are used to training in a, in a 172 Cessna or even a 152. Um, I know that you're still feeling this airplane out a little bit and that, you know, and it was with some seat of the pants uh, figures and just sort of kind of getting to know it a little bit. Um, one thing uh, that I wanted to mention uh, that I noticed right off the bat in the airplane is for folks who are seeing the video, there's the airplane um, right behind these guys. It's very, very pretty. It's blue and white. Uh, it's a gorgeous looking vehicle, but it's got these cool little touches that you don't normally see. Like there's a, an aerodynamic fairing over where the fuel drain is on each wing. There's, um, there, there, you know, it's got LED lights. It's got sort of a, a sweeping little, you know, exhaust. Uh, uh, it's got big, beefy, looks like spring steel gear and a typical hydraulic shock on, on the front. Um, what are some of the other cool little features of this aircraft um, that folks could look at? Um, and, you know, people who are considering buying it for a personal vehicle. 
This stabilator uh, has a full, uh, on the left side of the stabilator, you got uh, red circles indicating full travel up and down and a neutral position for pre-flight verification. It's not something you see typical on most GA aircraft. Yeah, you got your eyeball vents in the cabin, uh, and it works out actually really nice. You get pressure, you know, it's uh, almost like a Venturi pressure effect uh, coming at you. You saw that yesterday real well uh, on the ground. I'm sorry, in the air. We've got, on this airplane, didn't have it, but we'll have uh, our windows will be openable windows, uh, standard with all the airplanes. Uh, we're being worked on at the moment at the factory. As you mentioned, it's first airplane, so we are making adjustments and changes uh, as we go along uh, with this. Some of these are already in the books being done. It just takes time to get them out uh, online. You, I think you mentioned most of the, 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 the major changes. A lot of things are somewhat standard which is also nice it's not you know it's not totally different from people what they're used to seeing it's a metal aircraft and with a Lycoming engine Garmin avionics um, we do uh, we are taller we I can hold over six feet and I can walk under the wing no problem and not worry about banging my head uh, like we have in many of the high wing airplanes they've cleaned it up with wheel fairings and, and different uh, wing do fuselage fairings to limit the drag you know, the conscientious of that as much as possible, even though it's a metal aircraft and you have rivets, you can't get rid of that. Uh, but uh, they're trying to clean up anything that sticks out so that we, you know, limit the drag and maximize our cruise speed, which is pretty nice in this airplane. Uh, the, the, the one thing that immediately uh, I noticed, you know, just uh, and again, I'm uh, familiar with 172s. I learned in one and fly one r routinely at AFPA. So this airplane didn't really surprise me. I was not surprised by anything uh, during takeoff or climb. It felt solid. It was very responsive. Like I said earlier, it wanted to fly. We did some uh, air work. We did some steep turns. Uh, we did stalls. We did power on, power off stalls. And, uh, it, you know, it, it seemed like it was... Uh, a responsive aircraft, it did not frighten me. I was at home and comfortable in it. How will this relate to the student and the training environment? Well, it, you mentioned a lot of the points. It's, it's very uh, docile, uh, responsive aircraft, uh, and it also gives you as a pilot feedback, so you can, you know, you feel the airplane, you can fly it, uh, and, and it doesn't require uh, heavy inputs of light feel. Uh, you don't have to worry about someone over-controlling the airplane. It, 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 it's good and responsive. Um, you don't. You have your your typical. You select your flaps uh, 14. You get that slight balloon effect like you do in most airplanes. Very easy to compensate. Um, you know, and and I'm referring to uh, the training maneuvers like in slow flight or or power off stalls like we did yesterday. Yes, yeah, so, so we had a great flight yesterday, and um, and this aircraft. Uh, I mean, one thing that, um, that really impressed me was the visibility. We had a lot of visibility through the front windscreen. We had good visibility through uh, left and right side windows, which you said uh, will soon be openable uh, in the next version of, of this aircraft. And, um, and I felt like I had good situational awareness, regardless of the digital panel, which was blowing my mind. It was that cool. But looking outside the aircraft, I really was able to see, and I was able to see up. 
I looked up when we were doing our clearing turns for our maneuvers, and I was able to look out, you know, and then visually see if there was any traffic. That could be very, very helpful in a high-wing airplane like this. Um, but I, I felt like uh, I had good visibility. I felt like the landing procedures were pretty standard. You know, it was a little bit quirky to me uh, because of the flap setting, and we initially went to 14 degrees of flaps, and almost immediately went to 28 degrees of flaps. And we do, do want to mention that airplane does have 40 degrees of flaps available, um, but it didn't seem like we ever needed that that much drag to slow us down or anything like that. But maybe if you're operating in some other environment, uh, off airport, maybe something like that would be very helpful. I'm not sure. Like any airplane, it has a. Uh, uh, that amount of flaps that allows you to require that much less runway so yeah if you had to operate out of a off-road uh, you know dirt gravel strip and a small runway that would be ideal for that um, it, it, it's not the normal procedure uh, you know we for the book we're doing them 28 flaps and uh, not an issue probably in 98 percent of the places we land in the u.s uh, but the European market has a, a, a different environment that they operate in out of, and I'm sure it's pretty standard over there. Speaking of, speaking of the European market, I might ask Mike this question. I know both of y'all have been to the factory over in Italy and in Naples. Um, tell me, uh, Mike, uh, tell me a little bit about the history of, of, of the company um, that came up with the design. Well, I don't want to go with the company that came up with the design of the aircraft because it's, it's Vulcan Air now. Tell us a little bit more about Vulcan Air and a little bit about their history and, and just so folks know that this is not the only aircraft that they've ever manufactured. They've got quite a rich history and, um, and Chris, you told me yesterday they have you know, quite a few different models, but Mike, you've been over there. I know both of y'all have. Uh, tell us a little bit about the history of the company, a little bit about the factory, that kind of thing. The company was purchased in 1996 by the Defoe family and they've been in constant production with the Partnavia, or the excuse me, the Vulcan Air P68 ever since. I believe they're building about 10 to 12 of those a year. There's also a turboprop called the Aviator, which is built on the P68 uh, design, but it's uh, elongated, a little bit larger, has more doors, but has Rolls-Royce turboprop engines. Um, they also have uh, several other designs that they could put back into production. Uh, but they have not to this point. But it's, it's a very active factory that's been producing airplanes since 1996. And um, they started working on this airplane, putting it, started work on putting it back into production in 2014. They got the FAA type certificate in December of 2017. And so now here we are with the first one uh, in the United States. Uh, the second one is literally on the ship on its way over here. The third one uh, is near the end of the production line, so things are really starting to happen with it. And we're looking forward to having many dozens of airplanes within the next uh, year and a half or so here in the United States. So um, we're talking a little bit more about, uh, you know, we're talking a little bit about lowering the price of aviation, uh, and the Vulcan Air V10 is, is a good $100,000 less than uh, a lot of comparable aircraft in that particular uh, segment. So, uh, Mike, let me ask you this question. How does this translate to uh, the future of aviation and, you know, and how accessible aviation might be for the next generation? One of the things that we're most excited about bringing this airplane to market right now is what's going on in the flight training community and the pilot demand. As publisher of Plan Pilot Magazine for years, I've been talking about get ready because it's coming. There's a pilot shortage. And now it's here. I did a, a study over the summer 
trying to get to the bottom line on how many flight training aircraft are going to be required to train a uh, number of pilots in the next 20 years. And I started with the Boeing aircraft um, uh, report on the number of aircraft being sold and the, the type and number of personnel are going to be required to do that. And in that study, uh, there's, they're projecting over the next 20 years a, a need for 690,000, no, excuse me, 637,000 new pilots to fly commercial aircraft like Boeing and Airbus. I then took that and added in for regional jets, for corporate jobs, for CFIs, and for recreational pilots. And I came up with a number that over the next 20 years, there's going to be a requirement for 180 million flight training hours to supply this demand. And then you calculate in if there are, which is what most people think is a, about 10,000 training aircraft in the current marketplace, uh, that's about 18,000 hours on a fleet that probably already has an average of 5,000 hours on it. So there's going to be a need for thousands of training aircraft over the next 20 years. The exact number I, I hate to, uh, to try to speculate on, but it's going to be in the thousands. And so we're going to be ready to supply that demand. I think that's a pretty cool study. I want to talk to you further about that uh, maybe uh, in another, I don't know, another week or two for a whole other podcast. Uh, we could do that. But that is interesting. Those numbers are unique. And, and, uh, and what you're saying is that there really aren't enough aircraft in the fleet right now to sustain what we're looking at for training at the levels we're at now not even considering that we're going to need more and more pilots, as Boeing has indicated in that survey. Is that sort of what we're talking about? There's, there's going to be need for a lot of different pilots. In fact, one thing to add is I just noticed that Boeing introduced their 2018 study, and they've upgraded that number from 637 to 790,000. But I haven't had the time yet to delve into it to see if it's an apples and apples comparison. A little bit on the background of that is that um, I was at that Boeing uh, news conference up at uh, AirVenture, and they did, in fact, add in uh, helicopter pilots and uh, commercial pilots, you know, like for private businesses, things like that, which they hadn't figured out before, as you mentioned. Uh, and some of your research did include that. So I think finally they're catching, maybe they're catching up to you at this point. So um, so we're going to wrap it up real quick, uh, guys. Uh, we really appreciate you uh, letting us come down and talk to, uh, talk to you guys and chat a little bit about the Vulcan Air V1.0. You know, sum it up uh, in a statement or two, uh, either you guys or both of y'all together. And then if I didn't ask something that you want to mention and throw out there, go for it right now. Well, one thing, uh, since I'm the newest employee here, I mean, they say that um, when Chris started talking to me about this job about a year ago. Another thing that had been a part of my experience with Plane and Pilot Magazine was the seeing the recreational general aviation market becoming so depressed. And I've been working on ideas as to how to turn it around. And so I've come up with some ideas. Chris was aware of those ideas. And now uh, that we've got the V1 starting to come in the country, you're going to start hearing something about some other ideas that we've got to resurrect the recreational general aviation market. Well, and uh, the V1, uh, kind of continuing what Mike was saying, will hopefully be a part of that. And, and you know, lower barrier to entry, lower price point for newer aircraft may hopefully start to replace some of this older fleet that is around the U.S. 
and that will in turn hopefully generate some excitement to get people back out learning to fly uh, and newer equipment. Some of the downside to the flight schools that many people visit, uh, and I've seen this uh, through the years, that you walk in the door and you go look at the airplane, you're going to learn your son or your daughter or yourself are going to learn to fly in it. It's a 40 plus year old aircraft that looks like it's 40 plus years old. So we're hoping that with a lower price point, lower operational costs, uh, with the things we mentioned today, that, that we may be able to place these aircraft and, and get more people in the door and start to reverse that trend that has been going on in general aviation in the last couple of decades. So a final wrap-up, uh, either you guys tell us the website folks could go to or where they could come visit you for more information about the Falcon Air V1.0. Well, in the United States, the website is our company name with INC at the end of it. So let me explain our, our company name, Amoravia. It's a contraction of two words, American Aviation. So it's the first four letters of American, first four letters of aviation. So our, our website is A-M-E-R-A-V-I-A-I-N-C.com. And we're based here at Miami Executive Airport, and we're doing demonstrations here when we have aircraft available. So far, everything that comes in goes right out the door to our customer. And Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about Jerry? Sure. Well, the uh, first uh, set of aircraft will be going to a company called PHG Aviation. They operate uh, multiple flight schools in the country uh, out of the Nashville, Indianapolis, Columbus area, uh, one in the state of Nevada uh, area. Uh, one of the nice and neat things is we are working together with them that as these airplanes go out the door and are uh, at work at their flight schools, we'll be able to do demos, and depending on what part of the country you are, we should have an airplane that will be relatively close to you. Um, you know, we'll have some prior coordination, and, and uh, you can call us uh, or email us uh, through the website, and we'll be able to get you set up for your demo in the V1. All right, so, uh, so, so Chris and Mike, thank you very much for joining me, both for the video and for the podcast. It's a real unique opportunity. Uh, you guys have been most accommodating. I really was impressed with the aircraft. I really was. I wasn't uh, scared of it at all. It, it, was, it seemed like a friendly aircraft to me, but it has that Italian flair. So for folks who are listening on the podcast version, if we're looking at amoraviainc.com. Find out more information. You can visit the guys at Miami Executive, or you can look for a Vulcanair V10 at an airfield near you in the real near future. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. All right, David, um, thanks for uh, meeting up with uh, with Mike and, and the folks at Vulcan Air. Tell me, I mean, I, what'd you think about the airplane? How was it to fly it? Well, Ian, I really like the airplane. You know, I consider myself uh, the average everyman's pilot. Um, I've got about 750 hours and a lot of it in a 172. And this aircraft handled a lot like a 172. It was friendly. It was predictable. Hmm. There was good visibility. It had a little bit better performance than a 172, and it cost $125,000 less. And so that is the key. That might help us get more folks in the seats. Yeah, that's a big deal. Absolutely. Hey, cool. I think that's all that time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangartalk. And we're on iTunes and at the Sporties Takeoff app. All right. We'll see you next time, David. See you, Ian. Thanks. Thank you.
Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.